welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Gunter is an OBGYN, pain medicine physician, a fierce advocate for women's health, and author of The Vagina Bible, which is currently topping the charts on the Canadian bestsellers list. Number one, Dr. Gunter has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the internet's OBGYN, and has been actively taking down snake oil with science and clinical experience and by separating myths from medicine. She is committed to evidence, common sense, practical information, and her zero industry partnerships. Dr. Gunder has been making the rounds here in Toronto, spreading the word about the Vagina Bible, and we are incredibly grateful to have her make time for us today. So, Dr. Gunter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How's your time in Toronto been so far? It's been wonderful. Everybody was so nice and so receptive, and I've had some lovely food and um, nice beer, so it's all good. So, you're an online crusader for women's health, and it's sorely needed, especially in this day and age where anybody can write anything they want on the internet. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background in terms of what led you to where you are today in terms of women's health care? Sure. So, you know, I've been in women's health care as long as I've been basically in medicine. I got into OBGYN you know, right after medical school, and so that's been, um, you know, about 25 years. And uh, about 10 years or so ago, I got active online uh, because I wrote a book actually about prematurity. And some, I had a chance encounter with somebody who was in PR, and she said, you need to get on that Twitter thing. I said, what is that? I've never like heard of that. So I thought, well, okay, I'm sure I can figure it out. And I got on Twitter, and, uh, and then I was really... You know, I wrote a little bit about prematurity for a while, and then I realized that, you know, I'm like, well, there's all these, like, lies about prematurity. What are my patients, like, getting exposed to? Uh, Because I had really kind of stayed away from sort of women's health internet at the beginning because I was really involved with, you know, my kids' health. And then I started to see all the lies and myths and misconceptions, and it just really put everything together for me as sort of a piece in the puzzle about, you know, why patients were coming in, believing certain things, um, why they were turning away from medicine, why medicine was making them feel like they needed to turn away. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to fix the medical internet. (laughs) And here we are. And that is, again, one of the reasons we started our podcast is because there is so much misinformation out there, not just about the vagina and female health, but about everything rega- regarding health. Right. And as health coaches, you know, we hear these things that our clients are telling us and we're like, this is driving us crazy. So we're trying to get good people like you <laughs> to come on and get a bigger voice because we need more of that out there. Yeah. It's not just about powders and supplements, right? <laughs> well, on that note, actually, you touch on the shame around it. And it's interesting because I think even for my generation growing up, we didn't really learn, like it depended how savvy your parents were and how open they were to discussing certain things. Most women did not know what their parts were down there, had never used a mirror or anything like that. And what we recall from class, sex ed class, was who was going to get called to put the pubic hair on the vagina. (laughs) And that's the last thing you spoke about. So <laughs> I think from that, you've touched on how shame has has led a lot of the myths online. And some of that is around like cleansing mm-hmm. and things like 
ozone which we hadn't heard about yeah don't do <laughs> that like, don't do that don't do yeah that. exactly yeah. um so can you touch on just the idea that like they're a self-cleaning oven yeah i'm explain a bit about that for our listeners yeah um but just backtracking to the shame thing i mean when women when anybody can't use the right terms for their body parts the implication is then those right terms are shameful and then if you feel ashamed then you end up going to other corners maybe of the internet or other places to look for advice because you think it's shameful so I think the greatest act of feminism, the greatest act of equality is being able to call your parts by their anatomical terms because it's not a big deal. I mean, my kids grew up saying vagina and vulva and penis and rectum and they're fine. I'm just saying nothing bad happened to them. Uh, so I think that's important for people to know. And this idea really of you know vaginas being dirty and needing to be cleaned really ties into that concept of shame because women are are taught that their vaginas are dirty. And this is, you know, one of the core tenets of the patriarchy is that there's something wrong with the normal reproductive function. But if you want to marginalize half the population, you know, identifying one of the things that's different and weaponizing it's pretty effective. So yeah, so um, the, the vagina is filled with great bacteria called lactobacilli, and it has this fantastic mucus which protects the cells. And uh, vaginal discharge is highly evolved to look after the vagina. And it's really incredibly precise and like any sort of ecosystem, if you introduce things, you can disturb it. So yeah, so like just like you don't want to introduce cleansers into your self-cleaning oven in your kitchen because um, you're going to damage the, you know, the, the special sort of coating that it has. You can do the same thing to your vagina by douching or using wipes inside the vagina. Even douching with water can be damaging. Yeah. And paradoxically, if you kill that good bacteria, you're more likely to get vaginal odor mm -hmm. and you're more likely to catch a sexually transmitted infection if you're exposed. Not fun. Not, Not fun. fun. <laughs> exactly. But it smells pretty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm like, like I said in the book, it's a vagina, not a pina colada. Like, yeah. it shouldn't have a tropical scent. I died when I read that. Died when you I read know, that. It was like, amazing. I mean, I, like, why does nobody have a spray for like balls called puppy paws or something? I'm going to patent that. <laughs> no, but I, I think people are finally kind of catching on that you shouldn't, you know, clean out your gut bacteria, first of all. Like, we're, we're really just kind of scratching the surface on that topic, which is now becoming really, really popular in the nutrition field. And if you, you know, you take a laxative and you flush all that mm -hmm. out, you're going to get some other problems down the line. And Absolutely. So it's the same deal with the vagina. There's stuff in there that needs to be in there. Absolutely. This whole idea about cleanses and detoxes, you know, is used for all different kinds of body parts in harmful ways. I mean, it's used for the vagina, but it's used for the gut. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that, you know, you need to use enemas for cleanliness or, I mean, coffee enemas to reduce toxins. I mean, all of this is just the worst misinformation possible, you know, or eat this to, to balance your gut bacteria, eat that. I'm like, you know, actually, if you just eat like a balanced diet um, and, and, and try to avoid unnecessary antibiotics. I mean, you always have to weigh the risk and benefit. If you have, for example, gonorrhea, then you need those antibiotics you've been prescribed. If you have a cold, then you don't need antibiotics. So I think that we need to think about antibiotic stewardship um, and so, yeah, and this idea that, um, you know, that, that cleanse, cleansing your colon is needed is just the absolute, you know, peak misinformation.
Well, and one of the things you touched on as far as cleansers was like managing the pH of it. Can you touch on that? Yeah. So there's all this myth, mythology, and lies about pH in the body. And we see that everywhere, right? You see it with alkaline water or taking, um, you know, apple cider vinegar to balance your pH. It's like, well, wait, how does both acid and alkaline balance? It makes no sense. But yeah, I mean, so the, you can't change the pH of your bloodstream. If you do, you're quite ill and you'll be in the intensive care unit. Um, and if and if your doctors can't correct it back to normal, you're going to die. So blood pH is stable. And it's the same with the vagina. The vaginal pH is controlled by the good bacteria. The lactobacilli produces lactic acid and that keeps, and other substances that keeps the pH about 4.3 to 4.5. And that's one of the ways that low pH kills bad bacteria. So you can't balance your pH with an external substance because it's from the good bacteria. And the other thing is people never use common sense. So the vagina is, while we don't recommend cleaning it, it is exposed or it evolved to be exposed to seminal fluid, which has a high pH. So it's if introducing a substance of a different pH could change permanently the substance, the way the vagina was, then we we wouldn't be able to cope with ejaculate and we would never have evolved, right? Like we, we wouldn't be here because yeah. that would be damaging the good bacteria permanently. We wouldn't be able, you know, that would cause That's infections okay. and we wouldn't be able to reproduce and the evolutionary tree that that involved like ejaculation change of the vagina would have dried off died off right so um so the vagina is can cope with you know certain things introduced but you know it's evolved to cope with ejaculate it hasn't evolved to cope with cleansers and false ideas to balance the ph jade eggs jade eggs exactly yeah. boric or, acid or yoni thrones things like that yeah no i hate the term yoni i mean it just you know i i think that you know using other languages, especially, you know, non-Western terms to describe um, the vagina is really more of a form of sort of Western exoticism of other cultures. Um, because why wouldn't you pick like French, a French term, or why would you pick a Spanish term? Never like it's, seen. right. I mean, so, so it's, it's sort of trying to sort of suggest that you know, it's just, it's just part of, you know, marketing. And it loops kind of back into that shame piece about not using the right word for the right anatomical part. Yeah, I mean, you, like, should, you should use the word for the language that you're in. So if, if you're speaking French, you should use the French term. If you're speaking English, you should use the English term. If you're speaking, you know, uh, Spanish, you should use Spanish term. Like, whatever language you're speaking, you should use the right term. And, that, like, that's just it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I took sex ed as a kid and that night going home, and I remember my grandmother was there, and I was literally running around the house. There's like a loop you go between the kitchen, dining room, living room, running around screaming, ejaculation, <laughs> and giggling like crazy because I thought it was just great, and my parents and grandmother were like, yep, that is the proper word. Good for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, also, too, if you had sort of said that word earlier, when it was introduced to you at sex ed, you'd, it would have been like no big deal. You've just been like, oh, well, whatever, yeah. right? Like, you know, when you learn about spit or snot or things yeah. like that, people aren't running around going, oh, snot, because like they've heard about it. They knew about it. It's very true. With regards to PMS, that was labeled as a psychological problem at first. Is that correct? Well, it's, I mean, it, it actually is, uh, it is not really a gynecological problem in the mm -hmm. sense that it's not a problem with your ovaries mm -hmm. or your uterus or your vagina. 
it's um, it's a constellation of symptoms that um, happen in response to probably hormonal changes, but we don't really understand why. And there's a difference between PMS, which are sort of the normal symptoms that some women have, maybe up to 40%, which can include bloating and swelling and mild irritability um, and maybe food cravings that have to be confined to the two weeks or less before your period. Mm -hmm. So if it lasts longer than that, it's not PMS. But there's also premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, which is in uh, considered, um, you know, a psychiatric disorder, but, you know, I think it's also important to realize depression is also a psychiatric disorder and so is anxiety. And, and so we, there's always this kind of like hesitation when we say that, well, it's just a medical condition, like no different than saying a gynecologic condition. It just happens to be where it is. And those are the, the, the women who are severely affected by their symptoms. So meaning it affects their quality of life, their activities of daily living. And that's kind of like one to 2% of the population. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So we don't, we don't sort of really know specifically why that happens, but there are treatments that can be used and people who have milder symptoms in the PMS range, um, certainly eating a healthy balanced diet, um, exercising, reducing alcohol intake sometimes mm -hmm. calcium supplements can help so there are a variety of things to do cognitive behavioral therapy that doesn't mean it's in your head it just means cognitive behavioral therapy works um, and then people who have more severe PMDD maybe um, you know hormonal medication to try to balance out their cycles or antidepressants taken in those two week that two week period um, can be helpful so there's a range of treatments and so I think it's just important to say you know, this is a condition and it's very important to destigmatize anything related to mental health because I don't think we should be saying it's a mental health condition. It's just a medical condition. We work with a variety of clients. Frey handles a lot of the movement stuff. I handle more of the nutrition stuff. So I have a lot of clients who come to me asking about what can I eat to make X, Y, Z better, whether that's PMS symptoms, whether that's yeast infections, all these types of things. And one of the largest, I think, misconceptions out there is women with yeast infections. Right. And they'll come to me and say, hey, I can't have anything with yeast in it, or I need to take all the sugar out of my diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the book, I think you cited that something like 70% of all women will have a yeast infection at some point in life, correct? Correct. So with that being said, is there anything women can do in terms of the diet or anything else lifestyle habits wise that they can do to reduce risk for that type of thing? So there's no role for somebody, you know, who is otherwise healthy, you know, uh, with diet and yeast infections. And that's a, it's a complete lie. It's a myth. There's basically a, sort of this industrial complex that sells products for yeast. You know, for, the, the first thing I see when I ever hear anyone saying they have chronic yeast infections is about 50 to 70% of women who have a yeast infection get misdiagnosed. So the first step is, how were you diagnosed? Do you think you have a yeast infection? Did you have a culture, which means actually growing the yeast in a lab? Because there's a big difference. And doctors make mistakes all the time when they don't use cultures. So that's an important thing to say. But no, so your vagina actually is a quite high glucose environment. There's a lot of glucose in the cells. And when the cells are shed into the discharge, the sugar from those cells that's released and it feeds the good bacteria. So at certain times of the month, you may even have more sugar in your vagina than you have in your bloodstream. In addition that people have actually studied giving, you know, healthy women who don't have diabetes a large bolus of sugar and monitored the level of sugar in their bloodstream and in their vagina and guess what it doesn't change mm -hmm. that's why you have a pancreas so if you're t if you have a large amount of sugar your body handles it if you have diabetes, your body can't handle it, and then your sugar can go up. And so I think that's super important for people to know that that you're, you know, and then the yeast issue is most of the yeast that is in foods is not the same yeast that causes yeast infections. So right away, you would know from a culture if it's the same thing. But 
all yeast in foods that are cooked is killed. Like it's dead from the cooking process. Like it, it's alive and then it gets killed. You know, unless you have like unfiltered beer or something, that's the only thing that might have active yeast in it. And even then it's generally not the right strain. So, and that's what happens when you sort of confuse science-ish with science and you don't actually say, well, what are you worried about? I mean, look at the French. They eat all kinds of gorgeous breads. They drink beautiful wines. I'm sure they have good beer there too. And they're not plagued with more yeast infections than anybody else, right? They, in fact, they probably have a longer life expectancy than most people in the United States. So just common sense would tell you if if, um, if bread caused yeast, then the French would be like, you know, Dropping. yeah, they would they would all be too itchy to have sex. So that's <laughs> not what's happening. In fact, we also always think of the French as like the lovers that's too, right? True. So actually, that brings me to I, I just uh, don't want to totally sidetrack you, but we do have to touch on um, pubic hair. For that absolutely, same you should touch reason. pubic hair. <laughs> yes, you should touch it. And if you tug on it, it's attached to nerve endings, and that can actually feel good. There we go. That's <laughs> so there were two key things both on this topic. The yeast infection part in your book was uh, really interesting because I had no understanding what they were growing up, mostly because I'd never had one, but right. my good friend had, and all I knew was that she ate probiotic yogurt for it, and I was like, oh, that's very strange. But I never sat down to right, think right. about it. But then the other part was about pubic hair because. Again, growing up, we're kind of, there's a phase where girls go through where some start removing their Mm -hmm. hair and then you're starting to think like, oh, this is, okay, you're dirty if you don't. Right, absolutely. And you go into the benefits of it, which I think every young female needs to know. I know. It's so interesting to me that the thing that's actually designed to protect your vulva Mm -hmm. has been labeled as dirty. Now, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, exposing pubic hair has kind of been considered pornography since like the beginning of time like it was risque to have it in a painting Mm -hmm. if you look at you know all this greek sculptures there's carved pubic hair on the men and there's not on the women so so that that clearly female pubic hair has been something that has been weaponized in some way whether in ancient times you know, the idea of having, it was believed to be dirty for women and not for men. I mean, everything about women's bodies is dirty and everything about men's bodies is fine, right? So who knows, who knows how it came to be. But in modern times, you know, we have that information to know when, when we go through puberty, we develop secondary sex characteristics for reasons. They have evolutionary purpose. It's either to enhance reproduction or to protect the organs of reproduction, basically. And so pubic hair, you know, traps in moisture because that skin in the area has a higher moisture content. It's a mechanical barrier. Um, It may be involved in dispersing odor. We don't think pheromones are as important now as they used to be, so hard to know about that. But each pubic hair is attached to nerves, and when you tug on it, that's why it hurts when you pull it out, right? If you wax white, it hurts. So, So tugging on it provides sensory stimulation. So, you know, it's a body modification. It's not dirty. And I think that's super important. That would be like saying you're dirty if you have unpierced ears. You choose to have your ears pierced. If that's what you like, fine. There are risks. You could get an infection. Your earring could get pulled out. You you know, other things could happen. Um, and you weigh the risks and benefits and you decide. You might be like me and got your ears pierced and after five or six years could not maintain it and just let your ear grow in because it's just not for you. <laughs> And that's how people should look at pubic hair. It's the biological norm to have it. But 
we like to modify our bodies. And some people like tattoos and some people like their tongues pierced. They all have risks, right? If you get a tattoo, well, there is a theory. If, if the needle's not clean, you know, you could get hepatitis. It could get infected. Uh, you know, that's a possibility. You could scar. And you, you make a grown-up decision with your body and you say, what are those risks? Okay, I'm willing to take it or I'm not. And risks mean different things to different people, right? You can tell someone that they have a 1% risk of something and they think it's nothing. And someone else can think 1% is super high. Right. So that's why I think information is really liberating. Tell people what pubic hair is for. Tell people about the cultural pressures so they know where they're coming from. And then tell people the um, the risks uh, and the risks and the ways that maybe have this, the least amount of risks. And then it's your body and your choice. Yeah, because, I mean, where else have you heard or I heard or anybody out there heard pubic hair enhances pleasure? I mean, it's attached. It, I mean, it, you know, it hasn't been studied. There actually have been no studies comparing a touch, you know, on the labia with, um, you know, women who have or don't have pubic hair. But it's involved with a hair follicle. So it's involved with a nerve ending. So the, how could it not have some potential role? Just like if you, you know, if you're in a very intimate situation and someone blows on your skin and your hair then stands yeah. on end, right? That's That adds sensation. Mm -hmm. Now, that might not change person A's sexual experience and it might change person B's. Everybody's different. So you can kind of be aware. And it also, for some people, maybe they feel more confident with their pubic hair removed and maybe that's going to give them a better sexual experience. But it's just, if you have the information, then you can think about it and make a decision that works for you. Yeah. And really it's about eliminating that stigma because really it's like with women, like, oh, it's sexy with men. It's like, that's kind of weird you're doing that. It's just so strange, the different perceptions that are right there on that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of dudes that manscape, though, too. Oh, it's yeah, it's growing. It's yeah. Growing. And I actually think it's more in, like, I mean, obviously, like, I'm dating guys that are closer to my age range, which is older than yours. Um, and I'm actually surprised at the number that are, like, you know, want to brag that they're manscaped. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> it's your body if that's what you like. That's you do you, fine. bro. Yeah, I'm like, I, you know. I'm going to offer no judgment about how you maintain your genitals. Like, if that's what you like, great. Don't do it for me. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I always like to say, you know, picking pubic hair out of your teeth is simply just something you accept with oral sex. <laughs> and there she said it. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. It's, you know. <laughs> well, and you do walk through in the book, like, the common ways to remove hair. Mm -hmm. And then the options there. And I think that alone, to your point, empowers women to make an informed yeah. decision about what it's for. If you remove it, here are some common ways and here's what you may expect. Right. Exactly. No judgment, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I get back. I always talk. I often talk about tongue piercing in this way. Not that I'm a dentist or anything, but I talk about it because at my, when my kids were going to a pediatric dentist before they got a bit older, there was actually all these big posters up about the dangers of tongue piercing. And I had never thought about it before. Yeah. And I didn't know until I read the poster that it's associated with gum erosion and chipped teeth. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because yeah. people end up playing with the, the, the yeah. thing and they get gum erosion and then they can – it makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah. Well, isn't that good to be informed about that so you right. know there's a risk? Like, yeah. wouldn't you be like, well, that's super important to me. I want to have that done. Okay. People are more angry, I find in my experience, when they aren't warned about risks beforehand, right? Okay. If people say, yeah, I knew that could happen. Oh, I just – you know, it was worth it to me. That's an adult, grown-up decision, yeah. right? So trust people with their bodies. Give them the information and let them make their adult, grown-up decisions. Yeah, don't just throw shame at people. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it, you know, just tell people what the information is. I find that facts are just very liberating. And if you, but it's also really important because physicians haven't done a good job historically. Obviously, some are good, of presenting the information in a non-patriarchal way. 
Mm-hmm. Like, as opposed to, well, you shouldn't remove your pubic hair, uh, pubic hair, as opposed to, well, you know, here's the information. You make a choice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. And, and this leads us really nicely into the topic of rejuvenation that mm. you spoke about in your book. So right. I had PRP and stem cell injections into my knee when mm-hmm. I tore my patella tendon four or five years ago. Uh-huh. And this was the first time I'd ever heard that people are actually injecting these types of things and other things like collagen into their vaginas and vulvas. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So I can't speak about it anywhere else in the body, but it's totally untested in the vagina and vulva, completely untested. So you have to say to yourself, why would a doctor want to inject an untested thing into my body? Right? Like this kind of thing should only be done in the situation of a clinical trial where you're monitoring people for adverse outcomes. The other thing that I think is really important to understand is these things are done often in a predatory fashion. You know, many, many people have libido problems in long term relationships. If everybody, so think about when you're first dating. You invest a lot of time and energy into the sexual experience. You're trying to make something work. You're on your best behavior. If everybody 20 years in into a relationship invested the same effort they did in those first three months, you know, they might find they're in a different situation. So a large percentage of libido issues are relationship related, a large percentage. And so when you say I can cure your sex problem with an injection, you know, you are actually not only offering somebody an unstudied procedure that, you know, I've seen complications of them, but you're also saying, hey, you're not even saying that these other things that could potentially be treated, you know, should be treated. We know, for example, for women that mindfulness-based practices are very effective at treating libido. In Canada, we have one of the world experts, Dr. Lori Brado at the University of British Columbia, who's written this amazing book that I plug everywhere I go called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. You know, you shouldn't be having untested injections unless you've read that book and tried those things and seen sex therapists, but I would never have an untested injection anyway don't know if injecting something that could stimulate growth what into the the vulva what if that caused um hpv to become active what if it caused herpes to become active like we don't know we don't know it's completely unstudied and it's amazing to me when things like you know surgical procedures that come from pharma the pharmaceutical companies come out and maybe they're understudied and then we find that after they've been out and they've been making money and they get pulled from the market and everybody's so angry about that, that how did that like unsafe thing get through? Why don't people have that same anger to these injections? Because at least those things had some studies. I'm not saying they were quality studies at all. They weren't enough to let them get approved. It was yes. something. Yeah. But they had studies yeah. with at least 20 or 30 patients. These studies have, these things have nothing like nothing. And they're advised against by the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada and by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So I think it's really important for people to know that they are being guinea pigs. And if there's something, if you're having a sexual problem or a problem in a relationship, you are very vulnerable to that, right? I mean, everybody wants to fix things with a shot or a pill. I mean, I'm looking at you guys thinking, well, I'd like to look like you, but maybe I could just take a pill and that would work instead, right? That how much time and effort does it take for you guys to stay healthy and have these? I'm thinking, can you guys be my trainers? We'll talk after. (laughs) We'll talk after. after. But it it is true because I actually work with a lot of chronic pain people. 
and injury management and like well it happened on this one day and I'm trying to educate them that actually that's happened over the last 10 years right and that was that proverbial straw exactly and and they're like well you've got to fix me no I'm going to educate you on how you can start right helping yourself day to day but I imagine it's the same thing in terms of other areas right I mean and certainly in chronic pain I mean you think well you know you've been sitting with that posture for 20 years you've been hunched over computer for 20 years um, you know, you and now you're not 20, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, when you're 20, you can do so many things with your body and it bounces back. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's all these things are hard fixing mm-hmm. chronic problems. I mean, the amount of effort and time it takes to sort of move, like, you know, we have so much inertia going in one direction, right? And to change habits and things, it's hard. It's hard. If, hard. if losing mm-hmm. weight, we're easy. We'd everybody would do it. Yeah. If having you know being in peak physical shape was easy, everybody would be yeah. in peak physical shape. Like it takes incredible dedication and effort, and we also all have jobs, right? Exactly. So, and some people have to work two jobs and for kids. money and kids and mm-hmm. things. So, you know, I think that's why people are so vulnerable. Because yeah, I mean, if someone said you could take a pill and drop twenty pounds, I'd, I I know that's wrong, but I'd probably still read the article. I'd be like, really? What is it? <laughs> right? I'd give it a look. Yeah. yeah. And then the problem is once you've given a look it's stuck it's stuck in your mind yeah. right and yes. maybe you're not going to buy that pill but then the next time you see something yeah. and that gets to something that I talk about in the book called the illusory truth effect right we loved that yeah so the more we all mistake repetition for accuracy mm-hmm. so the more you see that headline about that pill that maybe could lose 20 pounds or whatever or vaginal rejuvenation or whatever you start to believe it's a thing mm-hmm. and so that's why I think it's incredibly important for journalists not to write about junk because you know they might write a throwaway article on this or on that but the problem is that it, it if that is something that comes through someone's social media feed and they see it on Instagram they see it on Facebook and they see it on Twitter they're like maybe there's something wrong with my normal vagina and there isn't your vagina is terrific and everybody's opinion about it is not <laughs> Well put. Yes, you, we uh, we really appreciated. We watched a couple of your talks where you dispel some of the myths, but also just talk about what to watch for. One of the key things is actually something uh, another GP on our show spoke about is uh, never subscribing to someone who is by title a doctor but selling something like their whole site is selling so their content is technically an ad and the ad is the content yeah I don't think doctors can sell products I mean obviously I'm selling a book but um, it's information and I also think well you know I've been blogging for free for eight years so at some point you know like (laughs) $30 Canadian for eight years of information I think that's pretty cost effective but supplements and things like that because those are designed to buy continually right Mm -hmm. to keep buying over and over and over again and, um, and I think that especially these things aren't proven. I think that doctors selling things that have no proof behind them is, is really not ethical. And I'm not talking about, you know, some rural GP up in like northern Ontario who stocks like walkers and canes yeah. because, because there's oh, no other yeah. store in town that does, right? Yeah. And they charge like whatever a small percentage of markup. Like I'm not talking about that. I don't think no. that's predatory. That's helping your patients get access to things, mm-hmm. right? And and these doctors know they're not money makers for them. I'm talking about selling products that there's no studies to support that they can be helpful, right? So if there's no studies to su- there's no studies to support supplements, there's no studies to support all these powders and potions mm-hmm. and things. And mi- any doctor that sells something that's got the word miracle on it, like you know walk away yeah Yeah. I mean the only miracle in medicine are like vaccinations and that's not miracle that's science that's science making it look so cool that it seems like a miracle 
vaccinations are science. Yeah. <laughs> just, I just want to clear exactly. that Exactly. Right. But it's so, <laughs> imagine like if you had gone to like the 1600s and told people or 1700s or whatever that we were going to eradicate smallpox, they'd be like, that's magic. There's no way. Not, I mean, and so if you do think about it, it is magical, but it's not magic. It's hard science and hard research. So maybe well, we just need to brand medicine differently. Yeah, actually, though. Give people like a point system. Yeah, or just, you know, this is really magic. to it, yeah. Um, one of the things that we were surprised to read in the book was that the condoms are actually the best vagina defenders, as you described. Yeah, them. well, yeah. So can you do just elaborate a little bit on the effects of like the birth control pill or mm-hmm. biofilms on vaginal bacteria and mucosa? Yeah, so, um, you know, studies tell us that uh, once women start partnering with men, that's when they have an increased risk of developing bacterial vaginosis, which is a condition where um, they're low in the levels of, of good bacteria. And that doesn't mean every woman at all who partners with men, but that's something to know about and the more people the more men you partner with the greater the risk and the more people the man you partner with has had partners so if he's had multiple partners so you sort of like and so on and so on so you know if you're someone who is struggling with infections then one way to protect your bacteria is to limit that exposure while you're trying to figure things out birth control pills actually with estrogen tend to be protective for the vagina because the estrogen is probably fertilizer for the good bacteria so there's that. Um, so that's certainly a protective thing. Um, and these are things to just to sort of think about while you're making decisions for your body. Also, from a condom standpoint, you know, exposure to gonorrhea, exposure to chlamydia, those aren't good things for vaginal health. And so, you know, keeping those things, HIV, all these, um, all these sexually transmitted infections are, can have negative vaginal repercussions. But biofilms are a little bit of a difference. So biofilms are these very cool... Um, I mean, they're not nice to have, but a lot of medicine is cool. Even the stuff that harms you is scientifically interesting. Biofilms are interesting. Yeah. So basically bacteria and yeast can form, the way I describe it is kind of like saran wrap, right? Plastic wrap. And it kind of, they coat themselves. So your body's natural defense mechanisms, like the good bacteria or the lactic acid or antibiotics that you take can't penetrate. So then the biofilms, you know, then the bacteria can kind of reseed itself from that area. And so we don't know too much about biofilms. It's a very early area of research, but certainly we think that for some people who have very resistant or recurrent infections, that they, they're treated, everything's fine, and then they reemerge quickly from a yeast standpoint that they may have a biofilm. We don't have tests to study for it, and certainly there is some um, data that suggests that people who have IUDs and who have recurrent, true recurrent infections, so I mean you're diagnosed on a culture and it's not a resistant organism, because there can be other reasons it comes back before you would sort of say it's a biofilm that that could be uh, you know that could be a possibility for you because we know that when we remove IUDs and they're they're tested that a significant percentage have biofilms people get biofilms on braces and dental hardware as well so these are just things to be aware of and I don't mean to scare people away from IUDs I think they're amazing forms of contraception Um, but it's just something to consider if you're having a problem down the road Absolutely. Nice. That was informative because I don't feel like a lot of us in our generation at least knew that <laughs> prior because I've asked friends since reading and the a- general answer is nope. <laughs> well, I mean, this is what I do all day. I'm a yeah. vaginal expert, yeah. right? So I talked to, you know, I'll have a discussion about biofilms two or three times a day because yeah. my clinic is filled with women who have recurrent yeast infections. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to figure out, you know, do they have a recurrent infection because um, they have, it's not really a recurrent infection. What they have is a resistant strain that's just never been treated appropriately. Right. Or 
do they have sort of a biomechanical reason for getting a recurrent infection, like for example, an IUD, mm-hmm. or do they have an immunological reason? And we don't really have that well sorted out, but you know, could there be something slightly different with their immune system and that's why they're getting recurrent infections? Mm-hmm. You know, or are they women and there's a group of them because it's normal to have some yeast in the vagina. You know, if I stopped a hundred women on the street and cultured them, 20 would have yeast in their vagina. And if I stopped those same women once a month for a year, by the end of a year, 70 would have had yeast in their vagina. So seven, so it's, so yeast is a normal part of our ecosystem. So we do think that there are some women who basically develop almost like an allergic reaction to their normal yeast. Right. So they're irritated at much lower levels. Mm-hmm. So normally it might take, a for most women, a huge overgrowth of yeast to get symptoms. But these women develop, so it's, it's a bit like seasonal allergies right? Mm -hmm. So some people can be exposed to ragweed and they sneeze and they have runny nose all the time. Just a tiny little bit of ragweed. Some people, you know, it's only bad sometimes, like on years when there's a bad bloom and other people never have an issue. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, I would encourage people to, so there's some people who have, who have problems with yeast. It's more like that. Right. That makes sense. I mean, even in the context of like, we deal with more with Gut health, obviously. Right, yeah. <laughs> Vaginal health is not our domain at all. But we see that too. The sensitive systems to a much lower level than like Dane could walk into, I don't know, a room full of something and be totally fine. And I would like stand a mile away from that room and probably break out in hives. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's of, just everybody's got yeah. And it's sort of like yeah. kind of twitchy histamine, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah. I mean, my eye blew up. <laughs> Uh, with a hive yeah. right before coming here today I was like oh that's fun yeah okay. it's just some weird pollen <laughs> yeah. that just yeah. you know don't know but it's, it's like, like poison ivy right like yes. some people have a horrible reaction to it and I can sit in a bed of it and like just no issue <laughs> you're lucky because or cashew we'll talk about that <laughs> oh, <one. okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah cashew is in the same family we have a couple of quick questions sure you spoke about the, the contents of your cabinet I thought that right, was really yeah. helpful. <laughs> Can you give our listeners like a top five things to have or not to have? Sure. So to, what to have for your sort of vaginal vulva health regimen. So I ha- I use a facial cleanser on my vulva because I, I use that all over my body because soap is drying and uh, I'm in my 50s and your skin gets drier as you age. Um, so I just use a CeraVe uh foaming facial cleanser for dry skin um, because it's cheap. It's like less than $5. It's great for everything. And I use that all my whole body. I don't use, you know, I don't want to dry my skin out. So I use that. I keep, uh, ooh, what else do I use? I use coconut oil on my skin because I have super dry skin, um, again, as I age. So I use a little bit of coconut oil as a moisturizer getting out of the shower. Um, You know, you can use pretty much any moisturizer if you want, but most moisturizers are just like oils formulated to go on your skin. So you know, Use real oil. I, yeah, I'm just cheap. But you know, I mean, that's something to think about. And then uh, what else do I use? I, I don't use much. I have like a very low maintenance regimen. I keep some benzoyl peroxide on hand for ingrown hairs or for like inflammation after if I'm getting a wax and I'm going swimming. So I have that. And I also keep some uh, hydrocortisone on hand for, you know, irritation or itching. I have that for everything because sometimes you, know, you get a mosquito bite or whatever. I just think that's a practical thing to have. And get rid of your dryer sheets. Yeah, a dryer. You don't need dryers. You're a waste of money. Bad for the environment. You know, it's funny. Everybody's always talking about, oh, this green product or that green product. The most green thing is to use less. Correct. That's the most green thing. It doesn't have to be manufactured. It doesn't have to be shipped. It doesn't. The container doesn't have to be thrown away. So. You know, so all, you know, all these like 10 step vulvar prep regimens, even if it's just for the sake of the environment, like you don't need all of that, you know? So I think that it's, it's super important for people to think the best green thing to do is to use less. 
Fantastic. Next question. Okay. Chapter 47 of your book is entitled Journal of Old Wives Tales, <laughs> which is devoted to help people separate online myths from medicine. So can you highlight for us maybe the top three things people should like look for as red flags when it comes to women's health articles? And I'll say apart from just avoiding everything from like Goop and Dr. Off <laughs> and Dr. Axe. Yeah, oh, Dr. Axe, right? He, on his site, he recommends, don't, I'm not going to say, I can't even say it, echinacea and garlic for chlamydia. Yeah, oh, I heard that. Excuse me, garlic for what? Chlamydia. Yeah, we'll just Pass. leave it at that. We're gonna, no, let's next. Your doctor, please. Yeah, yeah, I know, All right. right? So three things to look for. <laughs> so, and again, miracle cures. Anything that's a miracle. You know, there are, are really no plant-based therapies for any gynecological conditions. There really aren't. Um, if there were, we'd recommend them. You know, if, if I could treat your infection with, you know, a poultice of aloe, I would tell you to do that. And I think the third thing is, is this idea that that you can treat something with multiple symptoms with one thing, right? Like you can, when people don't talk about conditions and they talk about symptoms mm -hmm. because symptoms are related to something and you need to know, like if you have itch from an allergic reaction versus itch from a skin condition, those are different things and they would be treated differently. So when you start seeing products, oh, it's good for itching, burning this, that, and they, they list every sing single symptom. It's like, I mean, you know, you should probably see your doctor. Perfect. I do want to touch on for the listeners that you laid out uh, very nicely how to decipher symptoms and even just going through the process of speaking about them yeah. so that you can really determine as a patient whether you are actually describing it properly Right. because then your GP can or your OBGYN can help you. Yeah, I mean, I noticed along the way that doctors use different languages than patients. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's a little bit like you're, you know, if, if you're speaking French and your patient's speaking English, some words overlap. And you can say, oh, I know what that means. But a lot of them don't. And the context might be different. And so, you know, while I truly believe that we need to teach doctors to be better communicators with patients, I felt one of the fastest ways to fix the problem was to help patients understand the language of doctors. You know, so they could actually start to learn to have like a bit of a translator so they could learn to speak in those ways. But also, too, because the way that we think about symptoms medically is helpful because it helps us make a diagnosis so wouldn't it be good for you to learn to think about your symptoms that way too yeah yeah absolutely and the book is really helpful for that so at the end of all our podcasts we have a few wrap-up questions okay the first one is always what is the most impactful book you've read in the past year but i'm just going to say she's already given us one and the most impactful book is that anyone out there can read is better sex through mindfulness by dr Lori brado and the vagina Bible. Oh, and the vagina Bible. <laughs> I tried to tee that one up, and you just went the opposite direction. I'm so sorry, sorry, sorry. I thought you meant somebody else's book. But see, that's that's how nice I am. I'm plugging someone exactly. else's book when I'm here to plug my book. So both are books. <laughs> the Vagina Bible. Definitely buy it. Number one on the Globe and Mail bestseller list. And just hit the New York Times bestseller list this yes. week, too. Um, and I think it's appropriate for all ages. It's so, yes. so um, easy to read. And I mean, just starting off with the basic of an anatomy is yeah. something that many people don't know by the time they're adults. And I'll also say I think all the men out there should read it too. Yeah, I think I, anybody yeah. who has a vagina or vulva or who is vagina vulva adjacent. Correct. <laughs> or, adjacent. Or wants to be adjacent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I think we all learn more by learning about, yeah. you know, facts don't hurt anybody. Correct. So. No. Um, what is your non-negotiable self-care tool or daily habit just something that you do for yourself we know you're busy we know you travel a lot you've got kids well it's supposed to be exercise but that's really fallen off the wagon lately <laughs> with all this with travel we'll, we'll talk 
Yeah, it used to be exercise. I was up yeah. until like two months ago. I mean, I'm a, I run and I also bought a Peloton, which I love oh, nice. um, because it's one of the things I was short on was time. And it was like, you know, the 20 minutes or 30 minutes driving to the gym, the 20 minutes back. And I was just like, okay, in that hour, I could have already like finished my workout and showered. Mm -hmm. So I'm fortunate that I was, you know, in the financial situation, I could buy a Peloton and it's really helped um, on the days I just can't work out. And I actually really love the coaching that I always tell you how great you are. And it makes, it gives me like a pump. Yeah. And I was going to say, that's the second time that Peloton has been mentioned on our podcast. So that's just (laughs) FYI, Peloton. Uh, We are uh, hyping your product out there if you want to just send a little something, something our way. So Peloton, everyone. Yeah. I don't get any money from them, but I just, uh, a lot of, a lot of doctors apparently have them in call rooms. Yeah. So they can exercise when they're on call, which is like a really great thing because you can't leave the hospital, but you can be like, you can actually be like on the labor and delivery unit. You know, if you have like an hour, but there's nobody there, you can actually like get your workout in and then your doctor is in a better frame of mind. So if you had five minutes with someone, what's the one thing you could advise for their health? Um, oh, I would, a woman, for example, um, I would say that, you know, really it's all the boring things. That's why, or what other people would like you to say boring, like try to exercise regularly, try to eat a healthy balanced diet, try to get enough sleep. I mean, these are things you can't monetize, right? Like that's why they don't sell. But yeah, I mean, those are really the basics. Um, have some fellowship with people, you know, as long as being, there are some people who, you know, really don't like to mix and mingle, but the kind of fellowship that works for you and, uh, and try to have a hobby. You know, and the hobby could be reading, it could be bird watching, it could be knitting, it could be reading. I mean, it could be like your hobby can be anything you want it to be. But I just think that, you know, those are those are like my idea of wellness. Those are amongst our five pillars of wellness community and like that self time, which can be filled by hobbies. Right. Are, people will exercise and they will try their best to eat well but like they'll let the other pieces drop not realizing that sleep community or fellowship right um are all so important (laughs) yeah somebody told me this thing the other day which i actually thought i've got to figure out how that you know here i'm like oh they're like you're so busy i'm like yeah i'm working 200 percent all the time and they're like that's the wrong strategy that you should work at 85 percent so I'm like, yeah, well, that's great. But then you actually have then that 15% of the time during your day to fill with those other things that you neglect that fall off, right? Like you get in your exercise, you get in your food, but then you forget about the like the the me time and the fellowship and stuff. And if you actually, if we all only filled up 85% of our day, then we could actually use that 15%. I got to figure out how to do that. Though. Yeah. It's a work in progress, right? Yeah. All easier said us. than done. All of us. Way easier said than done. The first step is recognizing what you need to fix. <laughs> so exactly. last but not least, where can people find you? People can find me every single place at Dr. Jen Gunter. So on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Jen Gunter. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. Jen Gunter. On Facebook, I'm Dr. Jen Gunter. My uh, website is drjengunter.com. And if you Google Dr. Jen Gunter, all kinds of funny things will come up. Um, but my website will come up first. And uh, you can buy the Vagina Bible everywhere. Yes. Fantastic. And go buy the Vagina Bible everywhere. thank you so so much for sitting down with us today thanks yes thanks for coming on the move daily health podcast and we will catch you next time all right we hope you enjoyed our conversation to hear more head on over to stitcher or itunes and subscribe to the move daily health podcast and don't hesitate to leave us a review thanks for listening